Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Ryan Wellman, Creative Director and Head of Copy at Wellmark, a creative agency for healthcare brands, but he's also the author of this fabulous new book, Delusions of Brandger. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much. Welcome, Doctor, I should say. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. I insist on, on my uh, honorary title here. Well, um, it's interesting because I've found that people, creative people, can come from all walks of life. That I don't think many people wake up, unless their parents work in advertising, wake up and say, when I grow up, I want to be a copywriter or I want to be an art director. Do they? No. Well, I mean, most people don't even know what a copywriter or a director is when you when you talk to them and uh and i think that's right i mean it's that's evidenced by the fact that uh almost every story of someone that you hear who's in advertising they all say oh i kind of fell into it you know by chance it's very very unusual for someone to you know sort of come out of school thinking i want to go into advertising or at least that's my experience so so yes it's a very you know the backgrounds tend to be pretty diverse so your experience is, because uh, you grew up in uh, Perth, in or WA, uh, you did uh, a medical degree. What made you have this career shift? Uh, well, it was... Because you were a, compelled to, weren't you? It wasn't Well, logical. I was in the end. I was in the end. Um, but it was a bit of a um, confluence of circumstances, really, because <laughs> it, it sort of combined the fact that I had become quite disillusioned with my medical um, work uh as well as the fact that i'd always wanted to i'd always kind of had this uh, yearning to do some writing uh, and i'd always written um and so i wanted to try and find a way that i could kind of marry the two if you like uh and it kind of led from there so i did a i did a graduate certificate in professional writing and and uh and just was trying to find you know something that would, would allow me to use my scientific and medical background but still be able to write uh, and it went from there mm. And here we are today. But uh, apart from the work that you're obviously doing as uh, head of copy and creative director at Wellmark, and, yeah. and we'll get back to that because sure. it's an interesting category, the sort of healthcare pharmaceutical, uh, uh, what do they call it now? I hate this term, but wellness. Wellness, yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't the like The wellness <laughs> industry, you know, it's like we'll, we'll get back to that. But it's interesting, isn't it, because uh, I remember it once said that the trouble with being a copywriter is everyone thinks they can write. That's <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the themes I think from from my book actually, and it's, it's it is a constant problem, um, even compared to you know to art direction for example. I mean, nobody, not everyone knows how to use InDesign or Photoshop or whatever, but every pretty much everyone can open a Word document uh, and uh, and use a keyboard. And so yes, it's a it's a it's a real challenge, I think, sometimes convincing people that uh, they can't necessarily write as, <laughs> as well as they think they can or, or you know, in the way that copywriting um, techniques have been proven to be, you know, to be, uh, to be successful. So, yes, it's a problem. Uh, especially when you get a piece of copy back and uh, someone's taken to the red pen, <laughs> uh, almost like, you know, your third grade English teacher <laughs> marking your first composition. 
and they've mapped it all up for you. It's it's almost like, uh, well, why did you ask me to do it when you could clearly uh, do it yourself? Yes, it's a very very good point. Or you know, tr- track changes are probably the uh, the modern modern equivalent of the red pen. Um, but yes, it's a very good point. Um, Drayton Bird talks about this. He says, you know, why why um, hire a dog if you're going to bark yourself? <laughs> and it's uh, it's very true. You know, if if you're going to entrust someone to to um, be a copywriter for you, then meddling is probably not the best way to go. I uh, also personally experienced the uh, the account. Uh, I call them account management, not account service. Uh, coming back, and the client loved the idea. They just want to change the headline, the picture, and some of the copy. And they go, "So, which part of it did they actually love?" And, you know, I get the idea of providing feedback with a positive, but I'm not feeling very positive. <laughs> no. no, and unfortunately, that's uh, not uncommon. Um, yeah, I, uh, look. I think an account management is often is in a difficult situation because they need to be able to provide some kind of positive feedback. But yeah, uh, I, you know, a lot of the time it'd just be easier if they just said, just try again, <laughs> rather than kind of softening it. But, yeah. In fact, I remember um, there was a, a very uh, talented copywriter, a guy called John Turnbull, mm-hmm. who used to work at the Campaign Palace. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Great if- agency. And if they, if it came back with significant changes, he would say to the account management team, scrap that and I'll do a better one. But I need to understand what is it about this that it needs changing. Yeah, exactly. Because he would keep coming up with ideas and executions until the client went, yeah, that's that's yeah. the one, without yeah. having to have their input. Yeah, until until you've read their mind, yeah. So that's, that's obviously an issue. And, and obviously, you know, there are very different types of feedback and some feedback is very constructive as long as there's a kind of a rationale behind why it is that they don't think it's going to fit the, you know, fit the strategy or, or, or the brief, then that's fine. But uh, but kind of subjective feedback, I think, is the big issue when, when people just don't like something for whatever reason. So what, what in your experience, what's got us here? Because, you know, there was a time when the creative process was something to you know, at least be valued, yep. whereas now it feels more like it's just part of a service provider. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I wasn't around really in the days when when that was the case, that, the, you know, the creative process was, was strongly valued by clients and it was a real partnership. Although, having said that, we, we certainly had clients where that is, has been the case. Um, but my feeling is that it's probably a few things. I think that the kind of increasing pace of of uh, work being turned around and expectations of kind of short-term turnarounds and so on um, you know we don't have months to work on campaigns and that kind of thing um, the 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 short-term targets you know kind of sales have to be you know, shown to be um, increased you know within a couple of weeks or the advertising campaign isn't working and you know and I guess a lot of that has been fed by by the digital um, behemoth the beast, uh, yeah. the, the insatiable beast <laughs> yeah. of uh, Facebook and yep. uh, Google yep. and the like. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you know, I think it's a lot of things, and 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 as you say, I think partly the democratisation of of media and the fact that a lot of people are out there, you know, creating stuff and writing on social media and so on. So there probably is a sense that that anyone can do it, um, and that it's not a it's not a particularly um, important skill. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a bit like that film, the Pixar film Ratatouille, you know, where uh, Gustav said anyone can cook. Well, anyone can cook, 
but not everyone should. Yeah. And it's the, sa- it's the same with creating content, writing something. You know, there are things, there's lots of writing on the internet, but the fact that no one reads it is probably indicative <laughs> that it's not that good. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's been part of the problem. Well, it's part of my problem with, um, you know, the content marketing industry is that um, there's a sort of a push to put out content for the sake of putting out content and, you know, irrespective of what the quality is. And so, so that's, I guess, a, a challenge and, a, and an opportunity at the same time because, um, you know, really good quality writing stands out and, and still cuts through. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think the fact that it's not highly valued anymore um, is a kind of a constant stumbling block really for us. Is this why uh, your creative release is Twitter? Because you do you have a particular uh, great insight and turn of phrase that uh, really gets people going. Uh, yes, I think that's a fair observation. Is that it has really been a creative outlet in many ways. Um, uh, when I got into it, you know, we were very much um, uh, a pharmaceutical agency. So our opportunities for, you know, for really creative work were pretty limited. That's kind of changed now with Diversify. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but I just found that it gave me a bit of an outlet for um, doing something a bit more creative and, and you know, and commenting on, on some of these issues that we've been talking about within the industry. Uh, and, and it seems to have struck a chord. So, yeah, it's been, it's fun. <laughs> One of the good things about Twitter is the instantaneousness. The other thing is that the limitation of the number of characters um, actually impacts, you know, what you write, doesn't it? You have to be very concise yep. because it doesn't allow you to just waffle on. No. Is that one of the things you like, that that discipline, that challenge? Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. Um, and it's interesting because I, I hadn't even considered going onto Twitter, you know, in its early days. I, I, and this I, is as... Uh, Dr. Underscore Draper, yes, which I think yeah. is an inspired name, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it was a bit of a, it was on a bit of a whim at that stage, but yeah, uh, I've you know I can't change it now, so it's, it's, I'm I'm stuck with it. Um, but yeah, look, I it's interesting because I I kind of used to think of Twitter as being frivolous, and you know I, I honestly couldn't get my head around why people would want to be on it. Partly because of that, you know, the character limit, and I just thought, well, you know, how much how much interesting conversation can you have with that kind of limit. Um, but over time, I've come to realise exactly what you say, which is that it, it it kind of enforces discipline on you and, and makes you a much more pithy writer. Or if, certainly, I've I've found that anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it's been interesting. I think I think it's improved my writing, um, you know, at work and, and kind of in other realms. So it's certainly not just confined to to that um, medium. It's also interesting because you do build communities in some ways of like-minded people. And it also makes them uh, available to you to get instant feedback. I'm sure you've used it that way, haven't you? Yes, very much so. Um, And you're right, I've developed um, some really strong communities on Twitter. Um, There's a kind of a a few that are all kind of interrelated. So there's a very strong copywriting community you've probably seen, Mm -hmm. um, particularly for me in, uh, in the UK. Um, and then kind of strategy Twitter is, is, a, is a sort of related um, community uh, and then kind of, you know, at the ad world more, more generally and so on. And so um, there's, there's all, as you say, a lot of like-minded people, a lot of um, support and, and it's been, you know, it's been invaluable for, in terms of learning. But the other side of it, as you, as you say, is, is the kind of the instant feedback. Um, and 
one of the things that I um, kind of uh, used in, in putting the book together was that I knew which things had got a good response on Twitter. Um, so I, I, I kind of used that as a bit of a triage system for what I was going to include in the book. So Wow, um, crowdsourced publishing. <laughs> sort of, <laughs> well, not yeah, crowdsourced, sort of. but crowd-tested. Yeah, exactly. You've done your exactly. own market research amongst your audience. Exactly, yeah. It's, and it is really good for kind of testing what's going to work. Not that I started out, you know, that way, but that's kind of how it tra- transpired. Well, I have to say, um, and, and the book's uh, Delusions of Brain Show, um, I found it was interesting from the point of view, it's a collection of thoughts, yep. but that there's this overarching theme, which is let's stop focusing on the shiny new thing, the latest trendy, and let's get back to the very core of what makes great communication, great advertising, is focusing on who you're talking to, who you're trying to communicate with, and how do we engage them? It's funny how it's so easy in today's fast-paced, complex world that, uh, you know, marketers, agencies, and even some creative people have lost sight of that. It is. It is. It's, you know, it's remarkable, really, when you when you think about the fundamentals of it and, and just how um, overcomplicated a lot of people make it uh, and how distracted people are by, you know, new technology and so on. I mean, I saw something on Twitter today, just to, as an example, where um, one of my uh, contacts on there was saying that he's, you know, been working with these big co- uh, tech companies particularly who genuinely only kind of consider or, or conceptualise marketing as being marketing for one particular channel, you know, usually it's like a social media channel, Instagram or whatever, yeah. um, and they and they simply haven't um, thought about marketing as being anything broader than that. And, and I think that's one of the biggest problems that we face is that there's, all, there's this splintering of kind of expertise and, and, and sort of nobody, well, a lot of people haven't had any kind of training in marketing. They, they don't understand that it's more than just communication or, that, or even that it's more than one channel. And so... So there is, uh, there is this general, I mean, I, I struggle to think of another word other than ignorance. It's, that's kind of how, where we are. <laughs> I, I think part of this is the fact that, you know, if you look at marketing in the fullness of the discipline, mm-hmm. the most visible part of it is the communications. Yes. Right? Because if you get down to, you know, product design, pricing, distribution, these are all largely hidden. You know, they're hidden from sight. They're important roles they're important levers to pull in from a commercial sense but it's the marketing comms where you know the visible money spent in media it's where uh, content is created that's going to be shown to the world you know this is where people are attracted to like the proverbial moths to the flame you know (laughs) because it's where all the shiny things happen you know where the big news stories come from as far as marketing goes you don't see headlines that say you know um uh you know pricing mistake on on (laughs) items such and such but you do see ad fails or creates outrage don't you yep yeah there's no uh pricing brief <laughs> magazine as far as I know. Yeah. But that's exactly the problem. You know, it is hidden and, it, and it's not, you know, for, I, hate the, I hate the term, but it's not sexy. You know, people, people aren't, it doesn't excite people, all that kind of stuff. The, the other three Ps, if you like, um, aren't, aren't that exciting. To, um, and so I think a lot of marketers have become drawn to, to that flame. 
um, and 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 a and a small part of that flow. Not even you know, not even just communication, but very specific areas of communication. You know, all these martech tools and all, all the rest yeah. of it. Um, so yes, that's I, I think that's kind of the, the challenge of our age. In, you know, in, in marketing. Because I actually, you know, I'm passionate about marketing, even though I have a science, you know, pedigree. I, I, I loved science as a kid. I ended up working in medical research. But when I got into marketing, I loved it. What I loved about it was the uncertainty of it. You know, the whole idea of empirical proof and, and evidence. What And it's increasing, you know. People are looking for how to inform marketing yep. with more you know, uh, data analytics and insights and, and really proving the performance of marketing. But it's still largely about human beings. And you would know, you know, from your um, medical training that the great thing about human beings, and, and they say it in behavioural economics, you know, we're predictably irrational. <laughs> you know, we are irrational, but there's a predictability about it. You yes. know, so any science that's based on human beings is always going to have a certain level of uncertainty. Absolutely. And yeah. lack of predictability. Yeah. yeah. And I mean my background is in psychiatry, so it's so you know, even I'm more probably so. more aware of that than, than most. Um, but that's exactly right. I think we do need to understand the principles that tend to kind of stand the test of time. And I think um, people like Byron Sharp have have certainly brought that into focus more in, in you know the last decade or so. Um, but then, of course, there is always that layering, as you say, of, of unpredictable human behaviour and, and that's why marketing can never be an exact science, I don't think. Um, well, uh, scientists would call it a social science. Yes. yes. Which, which if you're in pure science like, you know, physics, physics. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically saying it's not really science. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of people do say that about marketing and probably to some extent fairly. Um, I, think, I think where it starts to get dangerous is when um, people start to think that it, it is an exact science and all that, you know everything that you can measure um, must be uh, must be correct and the problem of course is that not everything is measurable yeah. um, you know people like Rory Sutherland talk about this a lot um, the arithmocracy have kind of overtaken marketing and and kind of that's fine for the for the parts that you can measure but not so much for the, for the rest well, luckily, uh, complexity theory will do them in because, you know, it says you can do the same thing over and over again and get totally different yeah. results because the system that you're testing is constantly changing. Yep. In fact, the testing you're doing is actually influencing the change in the system. Yeah. yeah. And as, as a creative person, you must be aware of that, that <laughs> yeah, every campaign, every piece of stimulus that you put into the, the market, the system, has some sort of impact, either positive or negative, that fundamentally changes the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and even just thinking, you know, I mean, there's a there's a lot of luck involved at times. I know mm. I, it just kind of comes to mind the uh, that KFC campaign currently, the finger licking thing, which is just been horribly timed because of the coronavirus problem. Yeah. Um, but you know, they could never have known that, and you know, some sometimes there there is no way to predict how things are going to go down. It is interesting how social media, you know, in, they say is democratised communications. Mm. But how quickly things like that will turn, what do they call it, a meme, you know, it'll turn into a meme and it'll go viral. Mm. You know, it's interesting that we use all these terms, uh, you know, medical terms. Uh, we've actually got a pandemic virus going on. But, uh, you know, the industry would love to have their own virus. Yeah. For every yeah. brand. Yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. It's, 
I, I, I sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable with some of the, you know, the, the pseudo-medical terms that are used um, because they, they sort of, I, I don't know, they almost trivialise some of these things, I think. Um, and I even think they own, diminish the meaning of Yes, them. yeah, I think that's a good point. And meme is a good example. You know, meme has a much broader meaning than than internet meme, you know, kind of an image on a, on a computer screen. Um, but for a lot of people, I think that's become kind of what it means. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that, uh, and, and you touch on it in the book, is that one of the things that advertising and marketing seems to be particularly creative at is either coming up with new words or hijacking existing <laughs> words and making them mean something completely different. Yes, yeah. Uh, even even marketing the, the word has, has kind of been... Certainly, I think the meaning has changed for a lot of people, um, as we as we've already discussed. Um, yeah, or there or there is this it's this kind of trend of uh, throwing out what's gone before and and kind of reinventing it completely, even though the kind of the principles of it are the same. And I think content marketing is probably a good example of that. You know, a lot of the principles of content marketing are just the principles of good marketing, mm. um, but it uh, it had a nice new name and became well, a big thing. I remember uh, having a conversation with a content marketing expert a while ago and uh, I said, well, it's, this is not new. Yeah. You know, um, I think uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, created an almanac that was one of the <laughs> earliest forms of content. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the tractor company, uh, John Deere, yes, uh, yeah. is producing uh, content for over 100 years. Yeah, and the Michelin Guide, I think, is often cited as being a good example of it because it had so nothing the, to do with, you know. Yeah, so there's all these examples. You yeah. know, all we've done is use technology. You know, it's now uh, cheaper, easier and faster to actually create content and deploy it to a large market. Yes, potentially. But, <laughs> well, potentially, but you know, and going back to your earlier point, um, it still has to be relevant. It still has to be interesting. It still has to be engaging. Yep. You know, this is the skill of creative people, of production people, to actually achieve that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, there's kind of been this whole industry built around trying to uh, convince people otherwise in some ways that, that there isn't, it isn't a particular skill, you know, anyone can do this and, and com- any company can do this and, and I think that's been one of the reasons why we've seen this pr- proliferation of kind of nonsense. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, low-quality content, put it that way. Well, but because uh, the, there's platforms now that can actually produce content, you know, and deploy it for you, you just tip in the uh, ingredients at this end yeah. and out the other end comes all this... Uh, all this material. In fact, my business partner in the US, a guy called Michael Farmer, has been tracking uh, agency scopes of work and output since 1995. And he said back around the turn of the century or the turn of the millennium, um, the average brand would produce around 150 to 250 pieces of work a year. In the last five years, that's closer to three to five thousand. Wow! Yeah. yeah, and and to your point about consumability, you know, like this mass production. But the secret of mass production is to actually maintain or improve quality <laughs> while still being able to yes. customize. You know, uh, Henry Ford produced uh, cars for everyone as long as it was black. <laughs> Whereas production lines now have to produce a blue one with red interior, a green yeah. one with you know. Yeah, and I think social media um, content is, is <clears throat> a particularly good example of that. You know, you see a lot of organic social content that, that really is just pointless. 
Mm. Um, and and it seems to be a kind of a FOMO issue <laughs> that brands think, well, everyone's doing this, so we have to do it, um, irrespective of what the returns are. And often they are impossible to measure. So, yeah. Now, if if you know, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind moving on to um, the wellness category. <laughs> sure. I think we yeah. both agree that it's a <laughs> poor, poor use of the word. But you know, it's interesting because uh, you know we do a lot of business in the US where mm-hmm. they can advertise pharmaceuticals yep. on yep. television, um, and they do. In fact, if you go to the US and sit down and turn the TV on, I think two out of three ads is. Uh, is for a pharmaceutical. The thing that worries me is the uh, the disclaimers, the, yeah. the, uh, the yeah. possible contraindications may cause nausea, vomiting, and even death. Yeah, and yeah. at that point, I go, hmm, I'm not sure this is the product for me. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I, I assume that Americans tune out because they've seen those, those disclaimers so often that it kind of des- they become desensitized to it. But it's obviously a very different market you know i mean we we can't as you know yeah uh advertise pharmaceutical products to consumers here um so there is no uh, dtc so-called um advertising here which means that really what i do certainly in terms of pharmaceutical marketing is confined to um brand marketing to healthcare professionals and and then the only kind of advertising you can do to consumers is is really disease awareness campaigns so or a, ask your health professional. Yeah, well, exactly. That's kind of how it ends. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it is a very different market, uh, and it's it's odd because um, you know, as you say, there are all these disclaimers that they that they use at the end of, at the end of their consumer ads. Uh, so they're obviously highly regulated, but the regulation doesn't extend to kind of brand, banning that part of advertising, and uh, and we obviously face that issue. So it's a challenge for us here. The interesting thing for me is that in medicine globally, there is a belief about informed consent, Mm -hmm. okay? So that means that if you're informing a consumer slash patient Mm -hmm. about any sort of treatment or, you know, know, treatment or pharmaceutical or whatever, that they need to be informed so that they can actually consent to having that treatment. The interesting thing for me is it doesn't just apply to pharmaceuticals. It implies to financial products. Mm-hmm. It implies to so many things. The, the world has become so complex mm-hmm. or complicated, you know, that and so much of advertising and communications is trying to simplify everything mm-hmm. to, uh, to, you know, get through people's natural filters of, you know, I haven't got time for this. Yeah. How, yeah. do you, how do you deal with that? And, and what what do you think is the opportunity there? Because I think there's a huge, there's a gap there that's not being filled. There is, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that about you know financial products, for example, because <clears throat> for for a time my agency kind of diversified out of healthcare more broadly into other B two B areas that that kind of are complex and highly regulated. Um, such as you know financial products, for example, and you know corporate ports and that kind of thing, um, and so there are definitely parallels there. But as for as for how you kind of um, reach that balance, it's a really tricky one because so so a constant problem that we face is that we will write something that, as you say, you know, is kind of as simple and as as um, well, as simple, simple as it needs to be and kind of clear and, and well, well. As can be. Yes, exactly. If you make it too simple, you've actually often cut out the essential pieces that inform the 
audience, the yes. reader. Yes, yeah. So as simple as it can be, exactly. Mm. Um, but then the problem is that it's, you know, it then goes to, you know, it's not like if you work in an ad agency and it just goes to the client for them to sign oh, off. It maybe legal. legal, maybe legal. But we, you know, we then have um, all these other people are involved, you know, mm. the medical approvers and, and, and regulatory and all this kind of thing. And so it's very rare that it gets through all of all of those people without being, if you like, complicated somewhat or, or diluted in some way. And so, and so that's the challenge: is that you need to kind of try and um, balance that input with, uh, with with what you think is going to be the clearest communication. And and that's kind of you know that's the, that's the uh, the strength of an agency like ours, I guess, that we're used to dealing with those kinds of um, problems. You take on the challenge, <laughs> full steam ahead. Yeah. You know, solve solve the issues. Yeah. But you'd think, with you know, all the focus on financial services in the last couple of years, yeah, um, you know, the idea of the uh, product disclosure statement, which was pages and pages of you know, tiny, you know, no one is yeah. going to read it, yeah. and yet they're accepting and bound to those legal terms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we go on to how many times have you signed up for some sort of online service and it says terms and conditions here. I mean, yeah. even Google, someone said, you click, if you actually click on that, there's 13, effectively 13 pages <laughs> of terms and conditions, one of them being you can only take them to uh, a, a bit, hold them accountable in Ireland. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to actually... Well, that's, that's the only place they pay taxes. Isn't it? Yeah, so you've got to actually turn up in uh, yeah, in Dublin no. and uh, issue your yeah. uh, court orders. Well, this is exactly right. It's so complicated that um, I think, I believe there are actually some um, uh, companies and agencies that are dedicated to to basically uh, translating some of those terms and conditions into plain English. And, and some, you know, some companies actually use that. Uh, it just makes no sense. I guess it's historical. And you know, it protects it protects companies from being, from being sued. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's not meant to it's not meant to be communicated clearly. Is basically the answer, I think. What role do you think education plays? Because I think we do a really bad job at educating everyone in things like their own bodies, their health, uh, their financial futures. You know, all sorts of things. Yeah, and that and that's actually something that. <clears throat> uh, we do quite a lot of in healthcare. So it's, uh, <clears throat> advertising is kind of a relatively small part of the communications that we uh, develop. A lot of it is education, whether it's medical education for doctors, for example, um, or patient education. So, you know, we do quite a lot of I don't know, patient brochures, websites, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's really the key is that you're trying to simplify information, which is other, which can be very complex. And, you know, even doctors are often not very good at <laughs> communicating information simply to their patients. So so that's really, um, uh, I guess, where, where our forte lies. Mm. Yeah. I, I know that I've had first-hand experience because having some sort of science and medical yeah. training, uh, the number of times, you know, I've been with someone in hospital and they've asked them to sign something. And I go, hang on, this says informed consent. When are you actually going to have the conversation? <laughs> but everyone's time poor. Yeah. Everything's yeah. so complex. Everything's so hard. Yeah, yeah. I think doctors are getting better at it and they're being trained better in it now as well, um, <clears throat> you know, in, in providing properly informed consent. Um, but, yes, it, al- it always used to be very much just kind of throwing them the form at them and, and getting them to sign it. Um, but I think that is changing, and, and I think um, patient education and communication is is kind of a real focus of medical education now, as in medical training. 
But beyond agencies like Wellmark, mm -hmm. where you're focusing on doing this, mm -hmm. I mean, the danger is that there's a lot of other products that may not strictly fall under, you know, the the, the regulation, you know, the um, uh, the pharmaceutical uh, yeah. benefits scheme, yeah. but uh, and the like. But uh, you know, still, there's a need to inform consumers so that they can make a a proper decision. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of industries that haven't really caught up to that fact or, or haven't, you know, haven't had to adhere to regulations. You know, I think when we talk about the wellness industry more broadly, I, there's mm. a lot of cowboys out there um, who aren't really beholden to any of those um, specific paid bodies. Uh, and so you see a lot of very dodgy claims. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a real minefield for consumers, I reckon. Well, as a writer, you know, you'd appreciate when they say things... Uh, may be implicated in improving intelligence in children. <laughs> yeah. Whereas it's interesting because the same product appears in somewhere like China and it says, we'll improve yeah. the intelligence of your children. You know, proven facts, tick, yeah. tick, tick. Yeah, exactly. Well, it depends very much on the market um, and regulations vary a lot by market. Um, but, yes, that, well, that's one of the things. There are certain, you start to recognise certain words um, on products and you sort of know, ah, right, yeah, okay, well, medical is, or, 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 you know, the lawyers have said that you can't can't say this, can't say will. Because um, so, lawyers are such good communicators, aren't they? <laughs> you know, they really should become copywriters. Every lawyer should actually become a copywriter and then we'd have a lot more long copy yeah, advertising. We certainly would. Because uh, it would be clause after clause after clause. <laughs> a lot more semicolons, yeah. <laughs> and who doesn't like a semicolon? <laughs> I used to as a, as a school kid, yeah. Well, it's better than and... a full colon in every sense of that phrase. <laughs> yes. Mm. So uh, what, uh, the book, we'll get back to the book. Mm -hmm. What When you sat down to write this, and, and who was it that you produced this with? It's a uh, yeah, it's an agency in the UK called Gasp. Yeah. Uh, and more specifically, really, it was Giles Edwards, who's one of the founders of Gasp, and he... Uh, has been a friend of mine on Twitter for a few years. So, yeah, we just kind of talked about it briefly during a Twitter chat and all of a sudden it kind of escalated <laughs> into writing a book. Because it's also beautifully designed. Yeah, I agree. I think they've yeah. done an amazing job at, uh, at actually taking the content and, and just presenting it in such a way. If you had a, uh, a thought, or what, you know, what was the objective? Was it really just for you to actually collate all of these thoughts <laughs> or... Are you hoping that it will have some sort of impact or outcome? It's both, but it was definitely the first one first. Yeah. <laughs> In that I genuinely, it's funny that you say that because that was pretty much exactly what happened, was that I um, came to realise that I'd written quite a lot of stuff over the last few years, um, whether it was whether it was articles or blog posts or, you know, the little snippets that I do on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> and I was just kind of looking back through my archives and realizing that there was a lot of content there and so part of it was that i wanted to put it in a more permanent home um and then but then i came to realize as, as you were saying earlier that there was kind of this theme running through it uh that uh, that maybe people would you know would enjoy and, and maybe even learn from so so i guess that's how it ended up well i have to say the uh, feedback you've been getting on uh, especially on twitter you know, people uh, photographing their favourite pages yeah. and uh, there, there's a little, um, uh, like a, a flow diagram or quiz to oh, work yeah. out what sort of writer. It's interesting how many people are disappointed that I think they're a PR hack. Yeah. Of PR. 
<laughs> an author of books or whatever. Yeah. But uh, look, it's uh, I bought mine through Amazon. Is it available anywhere? No, now? unfortunately, it is only Amazon. So we were we were limited. We I mean we kind of we decided early on that we weren't going to try and get a publisher just because it's such a niche uh, kind of publication. But um, so yeah, but you've really... sold a thousand already. Yeah, or yeah. more now. Yeah, like, what's mate. it up to? What are you? Uh, it's about it's a, not much more than that. About about eleven hundred, I think. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can get a sponsor for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I think look exactly as you say. Uh, the snippets and things that people have been photographing. I mean, I think I think a lot of the credit for that has to has to go to the guys at Gasp, just because it is so you know good to look at and and kind of neatly contained in in little um, snippets and so on. So yeah, I'm happy with it. Look, uh, Ryan, it's uh, we've we've actually run out of time. Have we, Doctor Ryan Wallman? Thank you very much. I have a question for you before we go. Sure. And that is, is there another book in the making, and will it be even more pointed than this one? Thank you.